Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. Three men wearing black Janata parkas descended the loading ramp. Colding recognized the short, Hispanic Alonzo Berea. Behind him, Harold and Cappy, the black and white twins. Weapons, Sarah said. The only people armed on my plane are me and my crew, so give your weapons to Harold. Harold stepped up, hands out. Colding ejected his magazine, checked the chamber, then handed the Breda and magazine to Harold. Gunther quickly did the same. Andy laughed at Sarah, then grabbed his crotch and shook it. I'll keep my pistol and give you my gun, fly girl. How about that? Sarah shrugged. Then you're not getting on the plane. Stay here and fuck a cow or something. Enough, Magnus snapped. Andy keeps his weapon. Get this damn process moving. He stared at Sarah. That okay with you, Captain? Sarah glared at Andy, who was still laughing. Then she turned back to Magnus. Fine, she said. You're the boss. Magnus checked his watch. You all have two minutes to grab any personal effects. Andy and Gunther sprinted for the main building. Colding didn't bother. Neither did Roomkorf. John came out the front airlock, night winds rippling her clothes as she struggled to push a dolly loaded with a thick aluminum canister. Alonzo ran to help her. Cappy got under Tim Feely's arm and helped the drunk, sleepy scientist up the ramp. Gunther and Andy soon came back out. Gunther hauled a duffel bag stuffed with books while Andy carried a beat-up brown paper bag. Great. The asshole thought to save his porno mag collection. The two guards ran up the ramp and into the C-5. That left Colding alone with Magnus. So where are we going? An island in Lake Superior called Black Manitou. Lake Superior? How the hell are we going to get that thing? Colding jerked his thumb toward the C-5. Through the Canadian air defense grid and then U.S. air defense. Magnus looked away, as if the questions annoyed him. We have a contact at the Iqualit Airport and a flight plan that shows us as a 747 cargo plane going from Iqualit to Thunder Bay Airport. We have another contact at Thunder Bay. They don't pay air traffic controllers that much, it seems. He's going to log us as landing. Flight is about three hours, Bubba. Once past Thunder Bay, Sarah puts the C-5 into night mode. No lights. She flies below the radar deck. There's nothing between Thunder Bay and Black Manitou. It's 20 minutes of low-level flying. Golding nodded. That sounded like it could work. Well, still, isn't Black Manitou a little close to civilization for what we're doing? Magnus laughed. Close to civilization. We'll see what you think when you get there.
He unzipped the black canvas duffel bag a quarter of the way, reached in, and pulled out a manila folder. He zipped the bag before Colding could get a look inside. Here's everything you need to know, Magnus said, holding out the folder. There's only five people on the island, and they all work for Janata. Clayton Detweiler runs the place for us. When you see his son, Gary, tell him to make sure my snowmobile is ready. Colding took the folder. Magnus continued. You're off the grid as of now. No outside communication of any kind other than a secure comm link to Manitoba. No wireless security gear. No internet. No nothing. You guys don't exist anymore. As disturbing as that sounded, Colding also knew it was the only way to keep the project alive. Hell, the C-5 had been his idea, a way to keep the project going if anyone tried to shut them down. He thought about the way Magnus had looked at Brady's corpse and the deadly vibe he'd given off when he asked who did it. If Colding flew off, he'd leave Erica alone with this man. What about Dr. Hull? You mean the old woman who single-handedly fucked up your operation and killed my friend? Colding let out a breath that clouded in front of his face, then nodded slowly. Don't worry. I'll take care of her. Magnus, she didn't mean to hurt Brady. Fisher got to her. She just wanted to destroy Roomcorp's work, and— You think I'm stupid, Magnus said softly. That's it, isn't it? You think you're smarter than me? Colding shook his head a little too quickly. Magnus smiled. Sure you do, Bubba. You think I'm dumb enough to kill a woman that works for Fisher. This conversation is over. Now get on the plane or stay here and have a chat with your old buddy Paul Fisher when he lands. Colding paused one more second, unable to shake a feeling of dread. What choice did he have? If he wanted the project to succeed, he had to trust Magnus. Colding turned and walked up the C-5's loading ramp. The ramp led into a large cargo bay. At 20 feet across, it was almost wide enough for a two-lane highway. He'd reviewed the engineer's schematics, helped design them, in fact, but he'd never seen the finished product. Once inside, all he could do was stop and stare at the cows. The cows all stared back at him. He could see all the way down the long fuselage to the front loading ramp, now folded up behind the closed nose cone. Along most of that length ran just over a hundred feet of cattle stalls, seven feet deep, twenty-five to a side, with a five-foot aisle down the middle. Clear plastic walls separated each stall. Clear plastic doors completed each cage, with a bin inside the door to hold feed pellets that were dumped in by an automatic system. The outside of each door held a flat panel control monitor that showed the cow's heart rate, weight, and several other factors Colding didn't recognize right off the bat. Big-eyed, black-and-white Holstein cows occupied the stalls, each partially supported by a durable harness that hung from the ceiling. Hooves still touched the deck, but the harnesses carried most of the weight. Couldn't have 1,500-pound animals jostling around during flight. The occasional moos helped reinforce the surreal scene. An overwhelming smell of cows and cow shit permeated the place. A labeled plastic tag hung from each cow's right ear. A1, A2, A3, and so on. The animals seemed perfectly calm and happy. Calm, but big, standing five feet tall at the shoulder. 
Colding could only imagine trying to control 50 of them inside the plane if something caused a panic. Just inside the ramp to his right was the aft ladder that led to a second deck containing equipment, computers, and lab space for Ruhmkorff and Jean. Up there, they had almost all of their equipment from the Baffin facility, just a lot less space in which to work it. Past the cow stalls and on the right-hand side of the center aisle sat 20 feet of veterinary lab space filled with computers, supply cabinets, and a big metal table that ran along the aisle's edge. On the aisle's left side was an open space where a 10-foot by 7-foot elevator platform could lower down from the upper deck. Past that were 12 crash chairs arranged in three rows of four. Beyond the crash chairs, the folded-up front ramp and a metal ladder to the upper deck. Miller and Cappy scurried about, checking the readouts and testing the strap securing each cow. The men gave Colding several quick looks, as if they expected him to move forward, but the C-5's interior held him awestruck. The two crewmen quickly walked over to him, both moving nearly in lockstep with the same quick gait. You need to get seated, sir, Miller said. Yeah, Cappy said. You need to get seated. Colding nodded apologetically and walked deeper into the plane. Sorry, guys, it's just a bit overwhelming. And don't call me sir, call me PJ. Okay, PJ, Miller said. Yeah, okay, PJ, Cappy said. They led him to the crash chairs where Andy, Gunther, Ruhmkorff, John, and Tim were already strapped in. Tim was asleep, a little drool trickling down from his lower lip. The sound of heavy hydraulics whined through the C-5. The rear ramp slowly folded up on itself, tucking away for the upcoming flight. Two outer rear doors closed behind it, returning the plane to a smooth, aerodynamic profile. The C-5's entire nose section could also lift up like a gaping mouth. With both front and rear ramps down, a 57-ton, 12-foot-wide M1 Abrams tank could literally drive in one end of the plane and out the other. Colding sat and reached for the restraints, wincing in pain as his sliced chest and shoulder burned with the new movement. Sarah dropped down the ladder from the upper deck. She turned and saw him fiddling with the restraints. Let's go, Colding. Buckle up, damn it. We're taking off. I, uh, I need some help. Sarah walked up to him. In the C-5's bright interior lights, she seemed to notice his torn jacket and his blood for the first time. That's a mess, she said. Let's see your wound. It's nothing. Can you just help me with the buckles? She ignored him instead reaching out to open his coat and look inside. Sarah took in a short hiss of breath when she saw the damage. What did that? An axe, Colding said. Andy laughed his grating laugh. <laughs> an old lady with an axe, you mean. Better not let you meet my grandma, Colding. She might whip your ass for shits and giggles. Andy, Sarah said, shut the fuck up. Colding, I'll take care of this once we're in the air. For now, try not to bleed all over my plane. She reached down to both of his sides, grabbed the restraints, buckled them in, and tightened him up. Once finished, Sarah walked back to the fore ladder and ascended. Seconds later, the C-5's four giant TF-39 turbofan engines hummed with raw power. Colding felt the massive plane start to inch forward. Steady thrust pushed him back into his seat. The plane rattled as it accelerated across the snowy airstrip. Then much of the rattling dropped away as the wheels cleared the ground. 
As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. November 8th. Take it. Three UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters came in low, just 30 feet above the night-darkened snow. The two lead choppers flew in a wide circle around the Baffin Island facility's perimeter. The third Blackhawk hung back, stationary. Inside that third helicopter, Colonel Paul Fisher looked through binoculars, surveying the damage below. The ruins of a large sheet metal building lay crumpled like a giant stomped Pepsi can. Dying flames propelled tendrils of black smoke through the torn metal. The place looked like a war zone. Good thing he was going in with 24 soldiers. Paul wore a bulky blue bodysuit. He felt ridiculous, but the Kemturian suit would protect him against any infectious agent. At least it would if he'd put on the helmet, which was now sitting at his feet in a tiny gesture of rebellion against strict orders based on ignorance, as issued by one Murray Longworth. Didn't change the fact that Paul looked like a cross between a Smurf and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. 
The eight armed men seated with him in the Blackhawk looked far meaner in their full mission-oriented protective posture gear. Mop suits consisted of a mask and a hood that hung down over the neck and shoulders, along with a charcoal-lined bodysuit and gloves. The whole rig provided significant protection against chemical, biological, radiological, and even nuclear hazards. Not as much protection as Paul's smurfy Kemturian suit were it properly worn, but what the mop suits gave up in total protection, they made up for in mobility. He had no doubt these men could move fast and efficiently use their weapons. Mean-looking M249 squad automatic weapons and compact fabric national P90s. Eight more mop-suited soldiers rode in each of the other two Blackhawks, 16 men, who would storm the facility and lock everything down. The eight with Paul were part backup, part babysitter. He, apparently, was the baby that needed sitting. He wasn't part of the combat operation. When the men weren't talking directly to him, they referred to him as the package. All of this gear was overkill anyway. The odds of another lethal transgenic virus breaking out right now were about as high as a cell phone store full of monkeys texting out the complete works of Shakespeare in the next 24 hours. But Murray Longworth's orders had been both obnoxious and clear. Go in with all due precaution. Colding had already evaded them once, made an entire research project vanish, and eliminated any evidence of Janata wrongdoing. That was why Longworth wanted to go in fast, go in hard, make sure Colding couldn't pull a repeat performance. Looking at the burning hangar, Paul had to wonder if they were already too late. Colonel Fisher, the co-pilot called back. The outbuilding is destroyed, but the main facility looks intact. The teams are ready to land. Tell them to take it, Paul said. In the distance, the two Blackhawks broke out of their circle and closed in on the facility. Radar tracked the distance of the approaching aircraft, 150 meters in closing. Erica Hole cried. Duct tape held her to the security room chair, the same chair in which Gunther Jones had cranked out two full novels and most of a third. She couldn't slide her hands out of the thick, silver tape, and each time she tried, her ribs raged with their stabbing glass pain. 125 meters. More of that same roll of duct tape was wrapped around her shins, where it held a fist-sized ball of soft putty against her skin. Magnus had calmly explained the putty was Demix, a kind of plastic explosive. He had walked her through the process, told her exactly what would happen when the incoming aircraft closed to 100 meters. A coiled wire ran from the Demix to a small router he'd connected to the radar system. That router showed ten red lights, one light for each of ten wires. The other nine wires led out of the security room door, spreading throughout the facility, where they connected to much larger balls of Demex. 115 meters. No one was going to save her. Her petty vindictiveness had killed Brady, and now it would result in her death as well. Cold acceptance finally settled in. She stopped crying. Erica made one final wish that Klaus Rumkorf and Galina Poroskova would have long, happy lives. At exactly 100 meters, the radar system sent a signal to the router. A coordinated explosion shattered the mostly cinder block facility. 
Even though he was 500 yards away, Fisher flinched back from the blossoming fireball that briefly lit up the night and reflected off the white snow. A solid building one second, a shattered, burning, smoking wreck the next. Get clear! Get clear! he heard the pilot say. Fisher's Blackhawk didn't move, but the other two zipped away from the facility in case there were more explosions or hostiles on the ground that might take pot shots. Colding was a clever fucker, no question, but he wouldn't have done that. Magnus Paglione. Had to be. Damn it. Just stay away from the main facility, Paul shouted to the co-pilot. Tell the other Blackhawks to circle wide, look for people on the ground, and use extreme caution. Some of Janata's staff have special forces training. Fisher knew the men would find nothing. No research, no evidence. Janata had slipped away again. November 8th. Peach. Twenty minutes after takeoff, Colding watched Sarah descend the fore ladder. She smiled at her passengers and spoke with the mock hospitality of a flight attendant. Ladies and gentlemen, we're underway. Please feel free to move about the cabin. Tim was still out cold, but Jean and Roomkorf unbuckled. Roomkorf stood and walked slowly past the cattle stalls to the aft ladder, where he climbed up to his second deck lab. Jean followed him, the petabyte drive still clutched in her arms like a stuffed animal. Gunther and Andy stood and stretched. For the rest of the flight, they wouldn't have much to do. Fucking Brady, Gunther said. All the garbage we survive and he dies on this job. No shit, Andy said, then grabbed Gunther's shoulder in a rare display of camaraderie. Remember that house outside Cobble? Gunther looked away, then down. Yeah, yeah, I remember it. I'd be dead if it wasn't for Brady. You and me both, brother, Andy said. Gunther looked up at Sarah. Shadows of not-quite-suppressed memories clouded his eyes. Hey, is there a workstation here or something with a word processor? Where I could plug in this? He pulled a keyring out of his pocket. A silver flash drive with the red Janata label hung from the end. Sarah looked at the drive. What's that? Work stuff? It's his faggy novel, Andy said. That's how Gunn escapes memories of all the good times we used to have. Ain't that right, Gunn? Gunther shrugged and looked down again. We have a workstation, Sarah said quickly. All of you, follow me. And Colding, I'm serious about you not getting any blood on my plane. I'll get you cleaned up. If any of you want to sleep, I'll show you the bunk room. Andy leered at Sarah. You want to join me for a nap? Maybe confiscate my weapon the old-fashioned way? Sarah rolled her eyes. In your dreams, little man. Andy laughed his mouth twisting into a half-smile, half-sneer. He didn't seem that torn up by his best buddy's death, but then again, Colding had little combat experience. Maybe the ability to move on quickly was part of what made someone a professional soldier. Instead of taking them up the fore or aft ladder, Sarah pushed and held the button on the inside hull. Machinery whined as the ten-foot-by-seven-foot platform lowered via telescoping hydraulic pole mounted at each corner. We use this for heavy stuff, Sarah said, or when someone is gimpy and needs to go up to the infirmary. They walked onto the platform's metal-grade floor. Sarah pushed and held a button, 
mounted on one of the hydraulic poles, and they rode up. When the platform reached the top, Colding looked aft at the thousand square feet of second-deck lab space. A large flat-panel monitor, eight feet wide by five feet high, dominated the rear bulkhead. Soft, fluorescent lights illuminated gleaming metal equipment, black lab tables, small computer screens, and white cabinets packed perfectly into the C-5's arching hull. Already lost in code, Jean sat in an exact copy of her seven-monitor computer station. Roomkorf moved from machine to machine, running his hands over the various surfaces, staring for a second, then nodding with satisfaction and moving on to the next. Colding felt a bloom of pride at seeing his design brought to life and at seeing Jean and Roomkorf's apparent approval. You packed this baby tight, Sarah said. I don't know what any of this shit is for, but it sure looks expensive. Colding nodded. You have no idea. Come on, Sarah said. Bunk room is between the lab and the cockpit. She walked through a narrow hallway and pointed out the C-5's features. A tiny galley, an infirmary with two beds, a bunk room with three bunks, and a small room that had two couches and a flat panel TV mounted on the wall. A video game console and a rack of games sat in a small entertainment center on the floor below the TV. Now we're talking, Andy said. He immediately sat down and fired up a game of Madden. Damn. Gunther said. This plane is huge. Colding nodded. That's why we picked it. With our payload, it'll do over 3,500 miles without refueling. Gives us a massive range. And we're encapsulated. We do all the work right on board. Sarah pointed to a laptop sitting on a wall-mounted table. If you want to write, Gunther, there you go. Actually, I'm beat, he said. I think I'll get some sleep. Maybe Andy could quickly forget Brady's death, but Gunther looked haunted. How long had he known Brady? Five years? Ten? Colding felt the loss like a fist in his chest, but he'd known the man not even two years, and they had never been tight friends. Gunther had to be hurting bad. Gun, Colding said. I'm really sorry about Brady. Gunn nodded a silent thanks. He shuffled off to the bunk room. Sarah gently grabbed the back of Colding's right arm. Come on. She walked him the few feet to the small infirmary and pointed at one of the two metal beds. He sat. Without a word, she helped him out of his ruined parka. Bits of white down feathers escaped and floated in the air. She grabbed some surgical scissors and cut away his torn, bloody shirt. She wore no perfume, but this close, the scent of her skin filled his nose. She smelled just like she had two and a half years ago. He craned his neck to get a good look at the wound. The edge of the axe blade had cut him from his left shoulder to his sternum. He'd been lucky. If the point had gone just a bit deeper, it would have sliced his pectoral in half. Sarah cleaned the cut. Do I need stitches? Sarah shook her head. Basically a glorified scratch. Her hands moved delicately across his skin wiping away the still-oozing blood. She picked bits of white down feathers out of the cut before gently smearing antibiotic ointment on the wound. It hurt, but the touch of her fingertips felt relaxing. She quickly finished the job, wrapping gauze across the wound and around his chest, then sealing it in place with surgical tape. Despite her delicate touch, she radiated hostility. He had to talk to her, smooth things out, Listen, Sarah, I... 
don't bother. You got what you wanted. Me. And through me, a crew for this plane. Was that what she thought? That he just used her? That's not how it was. Oh? She stood straight and looked him in the eye. With his ass sitting on the table, her head was just a little above his. That's not how it was? Then how was it, Peach? Peach, that strange nickname she started calling him after they'd had sex. He'd thought the name cute then. Now, he found it uncomfortable. Call me PJ, please. Excuse me? Uh, well, you know, last time you called me Peach, we... Uh... She tilted her head and smiled the way you'd smile at some loudmouth in a bar right before you smacked him in the nose. Tell you what, she said. I'll give you a choice. I can call you Peach, or I can call you Mr. Rotten Fucking Piece of Shit that treated me like a used-up whore. How's that? Colding just blinked. Uh, that's not, I mean, that's not what it was. She crossed her arms. Then what was it? Used your magic cock to get me to sign the contract? He felt his face get all hot. Clarissa had never talked like that. So, Sarah said, which name would you prefer? He just wanted to end this conversation, and right now. Paige will be fine. I thought so. Now go get some sleep. I'll send someone to wake you when we get close to Black Manitou. Sarah strode out of the infirmary and turned left, toward the cockpit. Colding watched her go, watched the only woman, besides his wife, that he'd slept with in the last six years. Maybe she was right. Maybe he deserved it. And then he remembered Brady's dead body, remembered how he'd kicked in Erica Hole's ribs, remembered that Fisher would keep hunting for all of them. Those things were far more important than worrying about Sarah Perinam's feelings. He hopped off the bed and walked to the bunk room. Gunther was already snoring. The noise didn't keep Colding awake for long. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.